This panel discussion was recorded at the recent Western Australian Brewers Association conference in Perth. Brews News was able to attend to host and record these panels thanks to the generous support of Bintani. And we thank Bintani for their support, not only of us, but also those brewers in attendance at the conference and those unable to attend in person. Bintani, supplying the brewing industry with a wide range of quality brewing ingredients since 1995. And I'd like to introduce a man very well known to, to most of you, uh, Justin Fox, uh, very, very experienced brewer uh, and also a very generous and giving person in the industry, as you're going to show today. And this was a topic that uh, Justin and I discussed when we were looking at a technical topic around brewing equipment. Justin has his own consultancy these days, Grainkeeper, and he works for Bespoke Brewing Solutions. And as we've seen the brewing industry change, we've seen the requirements for brew houses change as well. So uh, without any further ado, I'd like to introduce Justin Fox to talk about the evolution of the modern brew house. Thank you, Justin. Uh, thanks, Matty, and uh, good to be back in uh, the mighty Western Australia, guys. Uh, big shout out to everyone who uh, dominated the RBAs. It's great to see WA doing well. So. It's a bit of an ad hoc session, so please shout out questions as we go. More than happy to, to sort of adjust and move on the fly. Essentially, what we're trying to do here today is just review a range of things that we're seeing happening here in Australia um, and across the world. So Bespoke Brewing Solutions is in about 20 countries at the moment. Um, it's a company being manufacturing out of China and selling yeah, across the 20 countries for about the last 10, 11 years. So we're seeing what people are designing. I guess from the nature of that, that company is bespoke. So we're really trying to work with people to design what they want. Um, and so we're getting a lot of engagement about where different brains are going in brew houses. So everyone's different. I think people can get quite stuck on the sort of systems they use first. We have, you know, if you used a grant on your original system, you like using a grant. If you didn't and you had a, a differential pressure tube, that might be the way you like to order. And we can all get sort of stuck in our ways. Um, but we're, we're really trying to see where the brew houses of the future are going and how we're adapting sort of new equipment and uh, new um, processing stages to try and um, essentially get the get new results and keep up with the beer trends. So another note, you don't have to be a new brew house to sort of evolve would be a point I'd like to make. Uh, evolution of a, of a modern brew house can be done on the fly. So we can, we can upgrade our brew kits. We can install new pieces of equipment. We can change pipe work and we can adapt to the kind of beers we're trying to make. Um, so yeah, just hope there's a few points out there that um, resonate with you along the way. So what is the purpose of a brew house? So if we were to stop for a second and say, why, why do we have a brew house? Why do we have a mash tun, lauder tun, kettle whirlpool, whichever combination of those you have? Essentially, we're just trying to make beer and we're doing it in a way that was historically taught to us. So brewing has a, you can look at it as a, as a beautiful nostalgic uh, tradition in the fact that we follow these same mechanisms uh, that have always been available and have always been done in the past. Whereas a lot of other industries have probably flown past traditional methods of creating beverages and liquids and adopted sort of new techniques. But there's, a, there's a definitely a heraldry with brewing that we like to respect and uh, is part of our story as an industry. So... Essentially though, extracting starch, converting, separating liquids, they're really simple steps that we're trying to achieve. And there are a couple of different ways to do these. So for example, a, a lauder ton versus a mash press. So there, there are differences out there in the way we do them, but we haven't really necessarily adapted into a completely new way of thinking. And is that on the horizon? So the road so far, so 
Look, brewing as, as a process has come a long way. As much as we have respected that heraldry, um, we've also adapted certain things that we believe haven't um, violated that tradition. So in the old days, you know, we're, we're burning... Uh, I was talking to someone the other day about yarn, Yarn's kettle uh, out at Last Drop, and it's actually still got a dome uh, facing up. So it's actually risen in the middle because it was actually used to have a direct fire underneath it, like an actual fire underneath it to, to run it. So whilst all of those stages are respected, we have quite happy to adapt. Let's use gas fire instead. Let's use steam heating instead. So we've made a lot of advancements to this point in terms of our energy and heat transfers and how we provide and um, the, the sanitation and those technical sort of uh, developments, but we haven't actually changed the process of what we're doing at the time. I'll jump on this one very quickly. Essentially what we're seeing is continuous change. So if we, if we break down some of these areas from where we were, so where we've been, whether we look back 5, 10, 50, 500 years, to where we're sort of sitting at the moment in the market and where the market is actually heading, where brewing is heading. So it was an industrial process. We really had no regard for how much energy we used to make beer. Um, water rates, consumption rates were high, energy demand was high, and we've moved to a sustainable model. It's, it's pretty uh, safe to say now that every brewery has a good sustainability mindset. We're all very conscious of our water. We're all very conscious of um, energy and some energy recovery systems. And the goal is really clear here too. It's carbon neutral. And we're seeing the first two, three, four breweries across the country actually tick that goal and, and reach that point. From a tradition sense, we were traditional. We brewed and, and brewing was only done one way. We're now very adaptable. So the last 10 years of emerging beer styles have taught us that we can actually, we can move very quickly in the kinds of beers we're making now. But where we're heading is more innovative even beyond that. So we're actually going to, we've actually got to get out of our heads that we're making beer. And this gets thrown around a lot with, with groups of what is beer, it gets thrown around in the judging circles. Like are, are some of these drinks we're making, are they beers? Well, that we're calling them beers because they're being made from a brew house in this process, but we're that, that last unlocking door is only one, two, three years ahead of that, that definition of that beverage is more a fermented beverage and we actually can lose the label beer a little bit as long as we're creating something that people enjoy in that space. And it could have barley, it could have other things. We're blending lines between grain and, and grape. So we're, we're mixing wine and beer together. Now what label any of those things get, it doesn't matter, but we've got to be ready to make those out of the equipment we have available in the brew house. Um, we were rigid, uh, we're now flexible, and this echoes the first one a little bit, and we're moving into a multi-beverage a multi capability. Brick Lane, uh, Paul was up here before, we had a, a Convoy Games thing over in Melbourne the other week, and they had their sparkling water. So it's, it's a very makes sense. You've got all the equipment there to make a nice sparkling water canned product. Um, why wouldn't you do that? Why, don't, why do we think of the brew house as a piece of equipment that can only make beer when there's a multitude of beverages that, that, that we can get out of that? Uh, we were steady, we're now fast and we need to get rapid. Um, and we were manual, we're now automated uh, to an extent. Obviously there's still plenty of manual breweries out there and um, uh, the level of automation can vary greatly. But the, the interesting one where we're heading and talking to instrumentation guys across um, New Zealand and Australia is we're heading into an AI space with the way we manage and make decisions around our brew house operation. So uh, an example of that would be Currently, we were running off to the kettle and we're getting a density and, and checking that density reading in the kettle and we're determining, all right, 
this is where we are, we'll work out our water addition and we'll work ourselves backwards. We're, we're, we're now moving a little bit past that and density meters and inline density meters and all of this, informa all of this um, equipment is actually getting quite cheap and quite accessible. It's, all, it's a gradual crawl down, but it's definitely far more accessible for sort of low to mid craft breweries um, to have a little bit more of that automation stuff actually as part of their kits. Where the next stage will be was who is looking at that information and who is making decisions based on that information. And in the future, it won't actually be uh, the operator. It won't actually need to be a brewer who's making those decisions because they're quite, I mean, we've all got spreadsheets, look at this, do that, calculate this. So that's all very capable. AI is probably far more capable at doing that reliably than regularly than we are. So to, to take that density example, rather than run off to a volume in the kettle and end up looking at the density, let's run off to an exact density in the kettle. So let's have an inline check running on that. We'll know exactly when to cut off the sparge and the runoff. Uh, and then we've got a known volume in the kettle. Now, instead of adding our hop additions and having a little bit of variance in, in bidness, let's now control, automatically work out how long we need to boil for. So it might be a 62 minute boil, it might be a 57 minute boil. So we're bringing that known gravity now back to a known bitterness. And all of these calculations will be able to happen in, in the background without us actually engaging with that. So instead of declaring, I want a 60 minute boil, you'll be saying, I want X result, and the system will back engineer the five or six data points available and control everything for you. Jumping back just a second, why, why Evolve? Um, touched a little bit on a few of these things. Um, obviously to improve quality, that's a no brainer. We're all very happy to adopt uh, new practices if we believe they're gonna improve the quality of our beer. Uh, improve safety, of course. Um, maintain connection to an evolving market and access new markets. So that's just, you have to evolve because the, the people we're trying to sell beer to are evolving and, the, and their tastes and needs are evolving. Uh, and then the no-brainers around just efficiencies and saving money on time, labour, energy and cash. So we'll start, we'll start with looking at that moving beer just quickly as we look at why, the, obviously the, the way we're seeing beer move is what's driving where the brew house and the equipment is moving itself. So there was a general acceleration across the board. Um, Australia and the, the styles, whether you look at um, IPAs, double IPAs, juicies, hazies, milkshake IPAs, pastry stouts. Um, Australia has seen just a, a general acceleration of what we're doing in beer in terms of the limits we're pushing beer to. Uh, five years ago, you'd go to the States and you couldn't believe that there wasn't a beer under 6% because you'd be like, we just don't drink 6.5-7% beer in Australia. But uh, pretty much now, every brewery you would go into, there'd be at least two, maybe three beers up above 6%. You know, it's not unusual to have seven and a half, eights and nines on tap now in Australia. So that's changing the demand on our lauder tons and our, um, on our mash tons and basically those things. Uh, the temperature of hop additions is changing a lot. And I'll reflect on that one. I'll touch back on that in a sec. Um, kettle sours, so we're, 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 we have a, a small stylistic sort of um, drive there that's definitely requiring different equipment. Um, and then the other emerging categories like low and no alcohol, um, seltzers, no boil brews, they're all changing the equipment we need to, to make them. Um, in regards to hopping rates and, and how that's changing the equipment, the, the good example I have is Pirate Life when they were um, talking with uh, the German manufacturers and told them the, the hopping rates that they were gonna put into this, into their whirlpools and that they just said, you can't, there's no physical way you can put that many hops into, into that kettle and they put them in and it was fine. So we're challenging the design and manufacturing elements. 
as, as the beer moves and as beer is moving through those stages of evolution, we're, we're seeing new standards in what uh, people are, are accepting in their equipment. So, for example, we have about uh, nine or ten breweries on the go in Australia at the moment, and these are some things that are pretty much uh, an easy um, option for a brewer. So if you're looking at what you're going to include, where you're going to spend the money at the start, pretty much all of these are getting across the line um, on day one on a brewery. And most of these can be done um, in situ on an existing brewery as well. So um, heat exchanges for, for hot and cold liquor. So over the last 10 years, it would have been the traditional state to have a double-sized hot liquor tonne and a double-sized cold liquor tonne. As we started pushing these kits harder and harder and triple brews weren't uncommon and triple brews back-to-back, it really became known that you've just got to triple-size your hot liquor tonne or, or quadruple-size your hot liquor tonne. You don't want to run out of hot water. But what that's creating is that's creating a very big heat sink that you've got to keep hot or a, a, big, a big energy sink. Um, and obviously it takes up a lot more space. So where the new breweries are going and the evolution of that is to just put, go straight to heat exchange filling for your hot and cold liquor tank. So uh, pretty much every hot and cold now for an extra thousand, fifteen hundred dollars you can put a, a steam fill um, heat exchanger on your hot liquor and a glycol fill. So you've basically got on demand hot and cold, you've still got your mass storage, you've still got protection on your systems, you can still trickle feed it in. Um, but it, it just reduces your footprint and it means on a Monday morning when you come in you're not trying to heat up a quad tank you can actually recirculate through so just a, a, an easy efficiency there tube and tube heat exchangers uh, talking with I hope you don't mind me calling you out on this Jason I think this will be one of his upgrades at Shelter that he's keen to explore essentially a tube and tube heat, heat exchanger is a counterflow heat exchanger uh, so the word is essentially just going through a pipe um, and that pipe is flooded with a second skin um, and either ambient water or, or uh, cold liquor or even glycol running in the reverse direction. So very much like your homebrew hose-in-hose heat exchangers. So again, for, for about three, three and a half, four thousand dollars $4,000, it's a very cheap piece of equipment and it can obviously be put on an existing brewery because it's all external. Um, and everyone's putting these in between the kettle and the whirlpool. Um, if you've got a combo kettle whirlpool, you can put it in as part of your whirlpool recirculation loop. And it effectively means you can control all of your cold side, uh, your hot side whirlpool uh, temperatures. So by the time you're in whirlpool, you're at exactly 80 degrees. You can then step it down to 60 and do a secondary 60 um, hot before you fridge out. Um, you can use it to quickly cool down before you do a kettle sour and revert back. So your kettle sours can start off um, a lot quicker and you're not risking that going through the plate and frame. So just real, real flexibility on offer. CO2 feeds and sealing off kettles. So in the last five years, I think kettle sours, obviously everyone's um, playing in that space. And so having the ability to isolate a vessel and having CO2 bleed points in your kettle, being prepared for that. Um, flow meters on all pumps. Uh, flow meters are coming crashing down in price. So um, magnetic flow meters are now can be under $1,000. So in the old days where you'd have your one flow meter and try and, you know, use that piece of information to make, make all of your decisions, they're pretty much going in as standard now on all the new brew kits pretty much after every pump in the place. So you can get more meaningful information. Um, and dual hop strainers. So uh, the high hopping loads have seen us adapt to our pipe work for, for going in and protecting the plate and freight and heat exchangers. And we're doing that with just dual hop, hop strainers so that you've got them in a, in a parallel setup so you can isolate one when one blocks and not actually influence your, your run. Another moving thing is flexible brew lengths. So 
What, what's happening now when we're, we've, we have varying limitation points? It used to be that a system was a 15 hectare brew house and essentially as, as hard as you would push that brewery, you'd get your 16, 17, 18 hectolitres out of it. But again, we were all making fairly generic beers in a small ABV range. What's changing now is we're playing, we're stretching that out. So we're playing much more in the three, two, two and a half, three, four percent range. And we're playing more in the seven, eights and nines, as I said earlier. So the, the concept of brew length is actually changes between beer and beer. It's very common now not to have, not every beer you brew is going to be 15 heck in a 15 heck brew house. You might be brewing 22 heck of your pale ale every time because it's a four and a half percent easy drinking. But then you might, when you, you're pushing that equipment hard in the other direction, you might only be getting 11 heck out of your, um, your imperial stout mash. So we're seeing now more and more people willing to split their tank farm. The tank farm doesn't have to be a multiple of your brew length anymore. If you've got a 15 heck brew house, you don't have to have 15s, 30s all through the brew house. You can definitely have a couple of 10s because if you've got two 10 hex, you could do a high into one, you could do a low gravity split mash and put different hops into each one. Um, you can do different fruits in each one. You can keep your high turnover and the high demand of skew turnover running and without necessarily taking up as much space. On the other end of that, if you had some 20 heck tanks, you can comfortably get 20 heck of a 4% pale out of your 15 heck brew house. So why not maximise your tanks then and actually still have the headspace and safety so you're not pushing your equipment a lot of people are doing this, they're just putting 20 heck in the 15 heck fermenter and sitting on the spray ball and coming in and finding half of it on the floor. But for the cost of it, it's very easy just to get that extra um, 5 heck capacity in that fermenter from day one. Evolving tank configuration. So, you know, a fermenter is, is a fermenter. What we're seeing now is, is some drive and some push to prepare the fermenters that we're making for the future. So... Some, some of these things are, are, are pretty obvious and, and have been happening for a while. Um, dry hop ports, etc. Um, pretty much no fermenters going in now without dedicated dry hopping uh, ports. Um, multiple thermo wells, which I'll touch on in, in a project I'll go through at the end. Um, the return of the standpipes. We're seeing a lot of people come back to a standpipe instead of a racking arm um, for reasons of just making it an easier tank to clean a nice standpipe design at the bottom and a commitment to what that draw height is. It, yeah, it's much easier to clean than a racking arm in the CRP um, operating procedure. Uh, the other reason they're coming back is it's being driven by centrifuges in the background. So we've got a better ability to recover the bottom half of those tanks than we did before. We didn't have to rely on trying not to blind a plate and frame filter um, by getting that racking arm in the right spot. We can really push a fair bit of yeast through in, in brews with centrifuges. Um, pressure sensor ports, talking to the guys at Endress just earlier today, and again, that, that, all that instrumentation is coming crashing down in price, and it might not be there for you now, it might, you might not be ready to make that commitment, but for the sake of a bright beer tank, us putting an extra port on the dome and an extra port up on the dish, there's no reason we can't put those two ports there and deadhead them, so you've got flexibility down the track to put a pressure sensor on top or a, um, a radar up on the top and looking down and give yourself the volumes CO2 pressures and give yourself the ability to do those things with consistency and without being there monitoring the process. Some other really cool ones with tanks, I think there's a few people playing in this space. I know Blackman's over in Melbourne are, are doing the air bladders, very much like the, the unpasteurised Carlton Draft. I don't know if that's made it over here. But the essentially a, an air compressor bladder inside a bright beer tank to push the beer out so you're not using CO2. Uh, we've got an interesting project at the moment where someone is using a 
a CLT bright beer tank combination. So they've, they've come to us saying, well, I need a cold liquor tank for my Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but I won't need it on the weekend and I can fill it up, get a bright beer dialed in and package it out Monday. So we've just created a fermenter that's dual pipe work and can be used in either format. Um, and check valves. We're making sure we put check valves on bright beer tanks for everyone now so they can be washed under pressure with our acid uh, by default. So jumping on to technology now. So we've seen how sort of the, brew, the, the different materials and uh, components that people are putting on brew houses. And now we're looking at the technology and this is the other real big change. I know we're talking about the evolution of the brew house but essentially it's the, the entire brewing process that's really starting to, to jump ahead and the centrifuge here is the best example. So Jump, jump back 10 years ago and there would have been a centrifuge at the Swan Brewery, well, no, 10 years ago that was getting ripped out, but there might have been two or three centrifuges running around in, in Perth. Um, most breweries now have it in their original plan. So we're doing 15 heck brewery designs and there's a centrifuge going in there on day one. So the, the size, GEA, and um, they've, they've worked really well at getting small kits, the cost has come down, it makes sense, it's economically viable, and we've seen them go in. So if we, if we take that philosophy and we've seen how quickly that's changed to some of these other things, you can understand where we're going to get to in terms of our acceptance of technology in these smaller craft breweries. So inline carbonation, there's already a module that they can bolt onto the centrifuge and achieve that for you. Uh, Deaerated liquor, was a, again, it was something for the big guys once upon a time, but it is now achievable on a small skid and it should be part of your planning and where is the DAW tank going to sit and how am I going to make sure I'm using that in my operations and my water flushes. Pasteurisation, uh, even before we get into low and no and the needs and all of that there, it's, it's going to be the next thing that's accepted as we try and build better consistency in trade and, and in our product. It doesn't mean we're going to start nuking everything but there is definitely a high demand for um, batch, flash and tunnel pasteurisers. So batch is along the idea of a big basket or a water bath and those kind of things. And a lot of people, Bridge Road, have developed their own, uh, are playing in that space and making, just that's how they're getting their um, non-alcohols out to market. Flash pasteurisers are being put in now. There's about three or four going in in Victoria for people working with fruit beer and wanting some stability for their fruit product. Um, and tunnels, I think Cody's even finally put out a, a tunnel, um, which will, again, uh, get cheaper in, in the next years ahead and, and be an accessible part of someone's planning. So when you're thinking can line, think about the beers you're gonna make and uh, is, do we have to keep room for that? It might not be on day one, but just keep, in, keep it in mind for the future. Uh, carbon dioxide recovery, those systems are available. Um, still quite expensive. You, you probably need to be, the break even numbers I did on that is at about three million liters at the moment for it to start to pay itself back over a number of two to three years. So. Um, but again, it's, it's not going to take much movement in this technology for it to become accessible at, at one, one and a half million litres, and that'll bring a whole heap of Western Australia breweries into the, um, into the realm of knowing that uh, carbon capture and washing and cleaning and reuse is a viable business option. Uh, and I touched on the, uh, the flow meters earlier. So what I want to do now is it's a bit of an info dump there, but I'll just touch on a few projects that we are actually working and show you how some of this stuff is actually being applied right now. So the first one is uh, Brewmate is a, a, a guy who set up his automation um, software, Farrell Atlas, he's done a lot of work with Moondog. Um, and they've done a lot around um, inversion temperature control and how that works with 
um, multiple zones in fermentation tanks. So they have three temperature probes in all of their fermentation tanks and they've isolated three individual glycol jackets and solenoids. And the system works over a, a set of four stages. So it's probably easiest to see, hopefully, on this via the colour so you can understand what's going on. So in the first example, it's just normal heat removal and the heat removal comes out at the top, which is, which is our standard sort of stage one of ferment. The heat is coming up, everything's moving, it's 20 degrees during fermentation, and obviously we've got high heat at the top, so only the top jacket is really needed. And by only using the top jacket, we're cooling, we're getting like a really nice deep crash back down the sidewalls, and we're getting really good movement in the tank. If we're above the inversion point, so between then and four degrees, as we're trying to crash, actually cool the liquid, not maintain temperature, we then get all the jackets on and get our typical crash. Uh, and then in the third one, we hit the inversion point uh, and everything stalls and you can see that it's actually coldest at the top. And then on the fourth one, we actually flick to below the inversion point um, and we get the reverse convection running up the side walls. So these systems, it's, it basically works like the top temperature probe actually controls the bottom jacket and they all control one further down. Um, there's a lot more science in that. There's a cool paper um, that's out on it. I'm um, happy to share that with Matt to provide in the notes. But it's just showing you that the energy efficiency and, and guaranteeing like an even ferment and constant temperature in your ferment can be achieved. But it has to, it's a decision we've got to make back and when we're designing the tanks. For three, you're not going to do this on a five hectolitre tank. Um, definitely starts to play in on about 100 hec that it's worth putting the three probes in and isolating those three jackets on separate lines um, to give yourself options. And it's about preparing for where the market's going to go for a very simple decision just to put in an extra thermo well at manufacture. Fox Friday, this is a little case from a brewery uh, Fox Friday we've just done down in Tasmania. And it's speaking, there is actually a tube in tube heat exchanger in this one in the middle. But this brewery's gone in with six heat exchangers on day one. So it's just an example of where we're looking at those energy recovery systems. There's a typical uh, word out. There's the plate, uh, tube in tube, sorry, um, between kettle and whirlpool. There's also a plate and frame um, for a crash chill of kettle for kettle sours. And then there's a dedicated hot fill uh, for the hot liquor tank with steam, a dedicated cold fill. And there's also a heat exchanger on the vapour condenser for energy recovery off the boil. So this is another one, another a West Australian uh, expat, Brendan O'Sullivan. So over at Three Ravens, uh, he's been over there for a, for quite a long time, and they're doing a major upgrade at the moment on their glycol system and a, and a heap of tank upgrades as well. But they're implementing a, a heat pump system. So the entire and this is where. Um, the, the big guys are going in, in terms of the energy recovery. This is where Crohn's and, and the like are spending a lot of time in making sure that all the energy points of the brewery, anywhere where we're trying to remove heat or provide heat, um, there is a connection between all of those systems. So I'll jump to the graph now. You're not going to be able to see too much of that from that distance. But essentially, you can see the complexity over what's happening here. We've got two dedicated hot liquor tanks, the mash tun, the kettle, there's a preheat between mash and kettle to recover your pre-runs and come in at the kettle hot. It's also running his refrigeration system, so it's running the cooling for his uh, glyco for his hop store and his keg store. It's running the hop freezer. It's also running the ambient um, cooling air conditioning for the building. So there's a temperate loop and all the cooling and heating for the venue and their offices above are all controlled by this one system. So. Essentially, if we, we look at it anywhere that there's heat that's needed to be trimmed up or down, if that heat is somewhere else in the system needing to go in the other direction, 
it will come from there first. If the net balance is there's too much heat in the system, then we'll jump to use cooling. And if there's not enough heat in the system, then we'll provide energy to provide the heat. But the balance is always done first. It's always a handshake between the system itself. Um, the secondary to this is they're actually then using CO2 as the refrigerant in the cooling um, mechanism. So instead of using an ammonia or any other refrigerant gas, it's actually on the expansion and contraction of CO2. So if, we, if, we, if you see what the big guys are doing, and you can see that it's achievable on a small brewery like Three Ravens, it's a, it's a 10 heck little system. We know the goals are real to have true energy balance in a, in a craft brewery. The last one to touch on here is Smart Brew. Um, so Brian Watson, uh, who's over in New Zealand and running uh, Good George Brewery over there, he's also developed a system called Smart Brew. And I think this talks to a little bit about that AI program we were talking about earlier. Essentially with Smart Brew, it's a, it's a high gravity work kit system. So they're making high quality, um, high gravity works out of full industrial facilities in a number of countries. Uh, and delivering it to a system that is then completely fully automated to do everything else. So all yeast, hops, boiling, everything else is done uh, on site, but it's all done under a fully controlled automated system. So this is essentially taking the brewer out of brewing and it's out there already. He's in about um, 10 countries at the moment. I think he's up to about 30 breweries in the States with about another 30 going in. So this is where that automation side and yes the flexibility is not there but he's got 10 he's got 20 different work kits available so you can make a great little brew pub with a with a range of beers and they can be customized because you can adapt the hops and everything but other than that you, you literally need it's a cook instead of a chef this is that version of, of needing a brewer there will you'd need to be trained but it's all fully CRPable on its own internal loops all air actuated valves you never have to open a open a vessel and this is where we're heading. So um, once this sort of technology comes on and we use the good parts of these little systems and we can take them into our big breweries and automate the bits we don't want there but keep the flexibility of grain and lauder, um, we're going to accelerate. And it'll be part of, of helping us solve that staffing shortage that we've all got. Um, it's not going to replace the brewers in the big sense, um, but I think it's definitely going to... Um, it's a good example of where that automation's helping. So that's all I've got, guys. Um, I'll be around for the rest of the afternoon and the evening for the awards and love to chat more to anyone. Thanks to Bintani for making the recording of this panel discussion possible. Bintani, supplying the brewing industry with a wide range of quality brewing ingredients since 1995.